Here's what the Word says. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. Now, there was a certain rich man, and he had habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man, man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus at in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus, bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony and besides all of this between us and you there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us and he said and, and he said then I beg you father that you send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. But he said to them, If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Let's be honest and say that this parable is a bit unsettling. It is for me. And I believe that the more we understand it, the, 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 more, and the more we rightly identify with the characters in it, and, and the key word there is rightly identify with the characters in it, the more unsettling it will become for us. So the context of this parable is the response of the Pharisees to Jesus' teaching about money. In this passage, in this chapter, he'd been teaching about money. And in verse 13 of this chapter, Jesus declares, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And to this, Luke tells us that the Pharisees who were listening to him, he reports two things about them. He says, number one, they were lovers of money. And number two, they thought Jesus' teaching about money was beneath them. So in verse 14, Luke says it this way. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. The literal translation for scoffing, scoffing means they were turning up their nose at Jesus. In other words, they thought what he had to say was, was stupid. They thought what Jesus was teaching about money was beneath them and they were willing to ignore him. If they were listening 
they would have heard a clear warning that I hope each of you will hear today. This is a parable, and thus we should not take every element of the story as a literal teaching on eternity, heaven, or hell. However, Jesus tells this story to teach major themes about eternity, heaven, and hell. And this, this parable is intended to teach and to warn and to encourage the wayward to repent. And so with that in mind, I want us to think in these ways this morning. Number one, I want us to have a, a clear perspective. It matters whether or not you're seeing things rightly. And your perspective determines whether or not you're understanding the present and what is to come rightly. So I want us to have a clear perspective. Secondly, I want us to understand that everything we preach about the gospel, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the opportunity to receive salvation is a limited opportunity. There is coming a day when your opportunity to know the mercy of God, to receive the grace of God, to be saved by the blood of Jesus will end. And lastly, I, I want us to come back to what Jesus says, and that is that God has provided a sufficient witness for all of us. Let's begin with having a clear perspective. Now, the parable seems to sort of begin with some pretty major opposites. So you've got the rich man, and it says that he lived, he wore uh, purple robes that Purple was a very expensive uh, um, coloring for fabric. That's just That would have been an easy indication. This guy wasn't just wealthy. He was crazy wealthy. What I mean by that is when you're, you know, there's rich people, and then there's rich, rich, crazy rich people that make rich people look like poor folks. You, hear, you follow what I'm saying? So this guy was the crazy rich. He had enough money. He didn't really think about spending all of his money. And it said about him in this parable that he, he dressed in royal uh, in purple, uh, fine linen, and that he lived his life gaily. In other words, every day for him was vacation. He just lived and enjoyed his, his money. And then there's a second guy. Jesus actually gives in the parable this second uh, character a name, and I don't think it's by mistake. He calls him Lazarus. And he says, Lazarus, there was a couple of things about him. He was desperately poor. Most likely from the parable, we're to understand that he's, that he's, that he's lame or disabled because he's laid at the gate of, uh, of the rich man's house. He's hoping just to get some crumbs. Now, Think in the terms of he's hoping that what the rich man throws out in his trash can is something good to eat. That's where he's living. And even the dogs are coming and licking his sores. So he's sick, he's poor, he's pretty pitiful. And then the parable says, and they die. Now there's a simple, there's a simple truth here that I don't want us to read past and miss. And that is to have a clear perspective about today and have a clear perspective about eternity, you and I each must understand that death is appointed to all of us. Death is appointed to all of us. Now, part of the regular duties of ministry is, is the ministering of, to, to the dying and to ministry to families who are grieving uh, the, the loss of a loved one and preaching funerals. So for the last 20 plus years, that's been just part of my life is going into homes where people are about to die, going into homes where people have lost somebody dear to them, and then going through the process of preaching funerals and all the rest, which means that I've spent a pretty significant time in cemeteries and around death. 
But even before I became a pastor, uh, visiting cemeteries was just a part of my family. And I don't know if your family does this. This might sound a little weird to you. But when I would go visit my granddad, part of that visit was we were going to the family cemetery. And we were going to inspect all the graves, make sure the grass wasn't grown over them, and replace the flowers there. And then what made cemetery visit with my granddad so wonderful was he had stories to tell about every grave site we walked by. Some of them were horrible, terrible stories about how the person died. And as a kid, we loved every one of them. We would intentionally sort of press him over by those stories, those grave sites, so we could hear the story again. But there is something significant and I think valuable in visiting cemeteries. In fact, I'm going to make the case I think all of you ought to spend some time in cemeteries because when you visit cemetery, it is impossible to ignore the reality that in this life, every one of us has a future and that is a future to a cemetery because it is appointed to us each to die. Death equally visits the rich and the poor rulers and servants, the educated and the ignorant, the first world and the third world, the young and the old, men and women, righteous and wicked. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you have, whether you're the rich man or you're Lazarus. The reality is at some point, death is coming for you. The reality of this world is that some will enjoy more ease and pleasure than others, but no matter what you acquire, accomplish, or accumulate in this world, all of us will die. Hebrews 9 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Now, this is not to call, this is not to, uh, to call, I don't want to cause you to be morbid or to be depressed. But this is, I think, a, a help for us to have a proper perspective. The foolishness of our flesh is to live as if this world is all there is or to live as if this, the things of this world will last um, past this world. In other words, they'll, they'll be forever. The love of money is to put undue importance, attention, and confidence in the things of this world. That's why Luke uh, tells us, the Pharisees, they were lovers of money. Their attention, their heart was bent toward the things of this world. But friends, reckoning with the reality of death allows you to recognize uh, how fleeting the things of this world are. There's not a soul in this room that can guarantee your next heartbeat. Does that not make you feel fragile? There's not a soul in this room that can guarantee the next breath. Take a big one right now. It might be your last. Because the reality is is we don't know when, we don't know where, but we do know this. For everyone here today, death is coming. All of us will die. But I want you to see something else here. And that is when when Jesus tells the story about the rich man dying and the poor man dying, Rich man goes to hell, uh, poor man goes to heaven. In the context of eternity, something changes. So prior to that, who would you want to be, Lazarus or the rich man? Well, if I'm choosing, I'd want to be the rich man, wouldn't you? 
I like to dress in fine clothes. I like to eat nice, and I definitely don't want to be laid up in, in front of somebody's house with dogs licking my sore trying to eat something out of their garbage can. But when you, when you put the perspective of eternity on it, and there the poor man is in, in glory on the bosom of Abraham, and the, and the rich man is in Hades, and, and in fact, the, the, the words there are being tormented and, 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 in, and in difficulty, who do you want to be there? Well, you want to be the poor man who is in the riches of heaven. And here's the point. The realities of eternity will overshadow the circumstances of this earth. Write that one down. Push that into your heart. The, the, the realities of eternity will overshadow the, the circumstances of this earth. This parable is not about the indictment of riches. And you ought to all be thankful for that because there's not a soul in this room that doesn't apply riches to you. We are the rich people in this parable, dear friends. But this parable is not indicting riches. If you're wealthy today, that doesn't make you any more righteous or any more wicked than one beside you. And neither of this parable is about the glorification of being poor. So if, if, if you're poor and, and, and disabled and, and all you identify with the poor, that doesn't make you by definition righteous. Riches does not in itself condemn, neither does poverty in and of itself make you righteous. This parable does point to the fleeting nature of this world and the eternal significance of the eternity that will come. Here are two realities for you. The two realities for you are the pleasures of heaven will make the sufferings of this world fade. The pleasures of heaven will make the sufferings of this world fade. Now here's the truth. Some will suffer more this side of heaven than others. That's just true. In this room, some of you have some health disabilities that are horrible. And the reality is the person sitting next to you probably doesn't struggle like that. You're suffering in that, in that context more than, than other folks. Do you realize, folks, that there are, there are places in the world right now where people do not ever know what it is to have a full belly? They'll never know what it is to, to eat a meal until they're full. And yet, many of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, oftentimes push back from the table with food still left because we're wealthy. And we can certainly say that we have more pleasure in that context than those who don't. But friends, I, I, I believe whatever level of suffering you have this side of heaven, the pleasures of heaven will make the sufferings of this world fade. In other words, the glories of heaven will so overshadow the sufferings of the present that they'll begin to fade and dismiss in your memory. And consequently, the torture of hell will make the pleasures of this world bitter. I think when you read the parable, the, 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 the meat of what's happening here is that the rich man would have said in that moment, I'd give up every cent I have if I could be with Lazarus rather than be in Hades. And when you've had something that good that has kept you from something even better, what you had becomes bitter to you. This world has some great suffering in it, poverty, mistreatment and oppression, physical illness, the, the physical uh, diminishment of age, and certainly death. Wealth in this world can provide some nice pleasure. Wealth will, um, can, can, can purchase your needs and your wants. It can provide for you power, both economic and political. It can provide for you physical comfort. It can, it can purchase for you the very best medical treatment around. It can, it can accommodate your physical disabilities. But dear friends, from the perspective of heaven, all the sufferings of this world will seem insignificant 
and small. And from the torment of hell, the pleasures of this world will seem bitter because they had distracted you from the true need of repentance and salvation. Dear friends, Jesus is calling us to look at our lives not from the perspective of this world. Jesus is calling us to look at our lives from the perspective of eternity and forsake what has no value and, and hang on to, grab on to what has eternal value. We need to see things from a clear perspective. There is an eternity that changes everything. Now, the second thing I want you to see out of this passage is that there is a limited opportunity. And this is some of the hardest things for a preacher to say because so much of what we do this side of heaven is proclaim the mercy of God, the grace of God, the opportunity to be saved. But it is important, friends, to understand that those offers and those wonderful opportunities are absolutely present, but they are limited. And I want you to see in this passage a couple of things. Number one, there is coming a day when there will be no more mercy. Hebrews 9, chapter, two, uh, chapter 9, verse 27 says two things. It says, all will die, is appointed each to die, and secondly, we will be judged. Listen to what it says. And as much as it is appointed for man to die, once and after this comes judgment. We currently live in a moment of mercy. We're not receiving the right punishment that we are due. But don't let the, abundance, the abundant patience of God cause you to think that he has abandoned or forgotten about judgment. At your death, the opportunity for receiving the mercy of God will be no more. In this parable, we're not, we're not told the spiritual condition of the rich man or Lazarus before death, but at their death, the reality of their salvation is made clear. Lazarus is received by God and the rich man is tormented in hell. Jesus relates in the parable that the rich man cries out not to be forgiven, but simply to have some relief from the torment of hell, no matter how small. So here's what he asked for. Now, the right thing is to say, not asking for forgiveness, too late for that, but, but could, you, could you send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and then take that wet finger and dab it on my tongue because that would be some, no matter how small, it would be some relief from the torment of hell. But notice the answer. The answer is no. You see, friends, at death, the opportunity to know the mercy of God comes to an end. No, I will not send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and cool your tongue. Not only is mercy no more, but there is no more access to the presence of the living God. Now, we should not make too much of the particulars of this parable as to saints being able to see those in hell or those in hell being able to speak to those in heaven. I, I don't think that the purpose of the parable is to teach those things. And I, and I don't think they're really the point of the parable. But we can understand the truth that in death, the opportunity to access God is no more. 
So in verse 26, Jesus says, and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from here, uh, from, from there to us. Now, friends, while you have breath in your lungs right now, while you have breath in your lungs, you have the opportunity of access. This is glorious to me. Right now, you can call on the God of all creation, and the Word of God says He will respond to you. Can I hear an amen to that? That is an amazing truth. Right now, the Bible says if you will repent of your sins, that God will hear your prayer and forgive you of your sins. Right now, guarantee that will happen. Right now, the Bible says that if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, the Bible makes a declarative statement. You shall be saved, made right before the holy God. Name written in the Lamb's book of life. Eternity promised to be with God in heaven. Right now, that is a promise to you to have access to God, to call upon God, and he will respond to you. All these things are promises of access But friends, those opportunities end at death. The refrain of every gospel invitation is come to Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. And the reason why that is said and the reason why that invitation is given is because at death, That opportunity is no more. And Jesus tells the parable, he says, no, there's no coming here or going there. Because at death, that access is severed and is no more. There's no more mercy, there's no more access, and there's no more peace. The rich man uses two words to describe what he is experiencing. He uses in verse 24, torment. And in verse 25, he uses the word agony. The word torment means severe pain, associated with torture. The the origin of the word is interesting. It comes from the testing of gold and silver as a way of making sure that they were pure so they could be uh, exchanged like money. And that testing, that that, that pressing in and burning of that that, uh, material to make sure it was pure, that word morphed and morphed until it became known as testing or torturing when it was applied to a, a person. The word that's used in verse 25, agony, means to be in severe or great pain, to suffer greatly, to be in extreme pain. I don't think we should pass by this unpleasant scene too quickly. Let's just be straight with one another. Hell is not the depicted depiction of the cartoons where it's a debaucherous party and everybody's having a good time. Hell is absolutely ugly. Hell is torture. It is agony. And I believe, friends, that the true agony and torment of hell will make this description of it seem light and easy. For those in hell, there is no relief. There is no rest. There is no peace. Do you realize that even right now, if you're not a believer, 
you're enjoying just by the common grace of God some peace from the Lord? Tomorrow's Memorial Day. All of us in this room are enjoying the common grace of God in our lives in that we are enjoying the peace of a stable nation. That's a gift of God's grace, is it not? Whether you acknowledge God or not, you're experiencing that and a thousand other things that are just by receiving the common grace of God. But friends, when death comes and you are in eternity, the opportunity for mercy, the opportunity for access, and the presence of peace will be no more. One last thing. So hearing this, two no's. I will not let Lazarus come and uh, uh, dip his finger in the water, and, and neither will, will, will I let him go. So then the, the, Jesus tells in the parable, the rich man says, um, well, we'll um, yeah, uh, I, I, I want to, I've got five brothers at home, and I want to warn them about what is, what is to come. In verse 27, he says, Uh, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In verse 30, the, the man pushes back, and he says, yeah, but. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. I know they've got the Moses, the law, and the prophets, but if, if somebody raises from the dead, they'll remember Lazarus. He was at our front door all the time. We stepped over him coming into parties. If he were to come back and tell them about what's going on here in heaven and in hell and what I'm experiencing, then they will definitely repent. And the answer is again, no. And the reason given is that Jesus is teaching us that the witness unto the gospel is sufficient. A couple of things here. Number one, the Bible is enough. In verse 27, the rich man changes tactics and his attention. So there, I think at that point, he's recognizing there's nothing that can be done for him. So he desires that his family and his five brothers be warned. That's, that's good of him, I think. And at first consideration of this, it might, you might think it reasonable. He rightly desires that his family not go the way he did and reject the gospel of Jesus. He reasonably believes that if he could just warn them, tell them about what's happening, then they'll repent. They'll get right with the Lord and not join him in Hades. But this request is rejected, and the reason is that the the brothers have Moses and the prophets. Now, Moses and the prophets is shorthand for a couple things. Moses represents the law. If you're trying to understand what the law is, it's really the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That represents the law. Prophets would be almost everything else. Think Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, and all, all those prophets that declared the word of God. And the point is that God's testimony through his word is a sufficient witness to the truth. Now, the Pharisees had and knew well the law and prophets. In fact, the the, the mode of their learning the law and prophets would have been memorization. They would have been able to spit back to you not approximations of what they thought it said. They would have been able to, um, to, to, to quote for you long passages of both the law and the prophets, both of which point to the coming Messiah, and yet there they were, standing in the presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, rejecting Jesus. 
The rich man in the story had access to the law and prophets which warned him of God's judgment, but in life he was unconcerned with their testimony. Friends, listen to me. The Bible, God's word, bears a testimony to the hope of salvation and the coming judgment of God. This is the beautiful grace of God. He's not withheld his truth from us. There's no secrets here. There's no mystery that has to be unraveled. God wants you to know the truth, and he's declared that truth to us through his word. You have access to the word of God. And what Jesus is saying here is that the witness to the gospel is sufficient in the word of God. No one will step into hell because God did not provide for them a sufficient witness, both of the opportunity of salvation and of the reality of the judgment that is to come. In my household, when somebody gets in trouble for not doing something, oftentimes the excuse is given, well, I didn't know. And the answer from heaven is ringing forth, oh, dear sinner, yes, you did. His word is enough. But there's something going on in this passage that I don't want you to miss. So the rich man says, yes, I know they've got the law and the prophets, but send Lazarus back resurrected from the grave. There's no way they can deny that. Then they'll believe and repent. Now, two interesting things here. I think the reason why Jesus gives the character in this parable the name Lazarus is because he would, in fact, raise his dear friend Lazarus from the grave. And if you, if you remember the testimony of John about that, Lazarus became such a mighty witness for the, the gospel of Jesus that the religious leaders tried to kill him as much as they were trying to kill Jesus. But it goes on from there because the testimony of the gospel is you and I do have someone who has risen from the grave. We have Jesus who was crucified for our sins, who knew no sins, but took on all of our sins, went to the cross as a sacrificial death for us, died for us on the cross, was put in the grave, physically dead, and in three days, what did he do? He rose again, victorious, and lives today as a living testimony to the, to the gospel that God has provided for us through Jesus, his son. You and I have the witness of one who is raised from the grave. And I would simply say to you, friends, that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. You know, sometimes when I get frustrated or discouraged with the lack of spiritual intensity in the church, sometimes I think to myself, oh, if, if, just, if we had some of the miracles that the apostles were performing in the early church happening amongst us, boy, then people would get right. And every time I read through the, 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 the testimony in Acts where Ananias and, Ananias and Sapphira fell dead in front of the church, if you don't know that story, they lied to the apostles in the front of the church, and, and each of them separate, they were husband and wife, but each of them separate lied in front of the church, and when they did, they fell dead right there in the church, and the church folks had to get up and carry them out of the church. And I read that story, I think, boy, if that were to happen at Central, don't you know the altar would be full that Sunday? And when I think about those things, what's really going on in my heart is if there was just something else. If there was just something else. Oh, God, if you would just do something else, then your people would repent, respond to the gospel. But Jesus, but Jesus in this parable says no. Because the word is enough 
And the testimony of Jesus is enough. We don't need Ananias and Sapphira to fall dead. We've got Jesus. We don't need the, 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 the spectacular, interesting moments of, uh, of, of healing, though that would be wonderful. We have the sufficient testimony of the Bible and of Jesus. Dear friends, Jesus has risen from the dead. That's the greatest miracle, and it makes every other miracle seem tame. He is the risen Savior who calls us to repent, who has saved us from our sins. The law and prophets are sufficient witness, but in the amazing grace of God, he sent his own son as the perfect testimony, the perfect witness, the perfect declaration of the gospel to us. We have what the rich man was asking for. And I think the only response to that is to repent. In fact, in the notes I say repent today. You have the testimony of the law of God, teaching us of our sin and God's holiness, teaching us of our need for atonement. You have the testimony of God's prophets calling us to repentance, declaring the provision of Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for sin, declaring the coming judgment of God. You have the testimony of Jesus, the Word become flesh, the one who is God, who healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, caused the lame to walk, declared salvation to sinners, died for our sins, was put in the grave, and rose again and ascended to heaven. And the witness is sufficient. And the only response for us today is to respond with repentance. On the morning of December the 18th, 1867, some events happened that were not spectacular. They were pretty regular. On that morning, the New York Express of the, of the Lake Shore Railway left Cleveland's Union Terminal at 6.40 a.m. It was heading to Buffalo, New York. It was a, not a very long train. It had a couple of bag, four baggage cars and one second-class car and three first-class cars. The way those cars were, were built, where they were, they were mostly wooden and because it's December and it was cold, on each end of the railway cars, they had a potbelly stove and some kerosene that heated the stove, and that gave comfort to the passengers. These particular cars, what they called compromise cars. In the United States at the time, there wasn't a standardized gauge, and these cars needed to be able to roll on two different company rails. And so the, 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 the rail wheels, I guess that's what you call them, were just a little bit off to allow them to ride on both different types of gauges. The, the, um, the train was behind. In fact, it was almost an hour behind when it finally passed through Angola, uh, uh, New York. It went through Angola about 3.11 p.m. that afternoon, and just after it crossed uh, past the, uh, the, the town, it hit what is called a frog, and that's where you have a, a rail split, where one line splits off from the other. And because one of the back axles of one of the last cars on the train was a little deformed and because it was a compromised car and the, the, the wheels weren't very tight on the rails, when it hit that frog, that jarring was enough to pop the, the last axle off the track and derail the train. Well, at that point in the journey, 
The train was running at its top speed. Remember, I told you they were an hour behind, and they were trying to make up some distance and make up some time to get to Buffalo. When that last car derailed, that, that train was just about to go over a very deep ravine just past Angola, New York. The, the last car began to sway wildly, and that swaying began to cause other um, cars to, to, to decouple and to, and to derail. The, the train immediately went into a hard break. They tried to stop, but the momentum of the cars pushed the, the train on through and over the, the, the trestle going over the great ravine. Some of the cars made it over to the ravine, over the ravine, but the last car toppled over and it plunged down 85 feet to the bottom of the ravine. And when it hit the bottom, it landed in a 45 degree angle. And when it did, the, the people that were inside the cars were all pressed to the bottom. And that potbelly stove that was up at the top that wasn't fashioned very tightly let loose. And it and all the hot coals and all the kerosene flowed down on the people. And the surviving passengers said that for five to ten minutes they could hear the horrid screams of the passengers who were being burned alive inside the train car. It was sensational news. It was called Angola Horror. At the time, it was the most deadly train crash in the United States history. You can imagine the aftermath of it was terrible as people tried to identify their loved ones. One interesting thing of note is that um, that day, that morning, when the train left, John D. Rockefeller was intended to be on that train. In fact, his baggage, made, his baggage made the train, but because he was late, he did not. Now, anytime an event like that happens, a tragic event happens, there are always those stories of those who intended to be on the train and didn't make it, or those who are on their way and at the last minute were, were hindered from being there and didn't make it, and it's sensational because we think, Oh, you, you averted, you, you escaped a great tragedy. Now, the reality of it is such events cannot be foreknown. But if they could, who among us would have not, uh, who among us would have gotten on the train that day? If you knew it was going for a disaster, there's not a soul in the room that would have paid your money to get, get the ticket and ride the train. For even more than that, if you had a loved one. Even if you had someone you didn't like that much who was planning to ride the train, you would have done all you could to persuade them, don't ride today. It's heading for disaster. And it wouldn't matter what kind of important things you had to do in Buffalo. It wouldn't matter what kind of things you had going on. Everything would have been submissive to the reality that that train is heading for disaster. Get off of it now and save your life. Dear friends, the horrors of hell will make the tragedies of this world seem trifling. And out of amazing grace, God has forewarned us. God has told us what is coming. He has given us His law his prophets, and even his own son. Jesus, 
who was crucified, buried, and then rose again from the grave as a testimony both to the hope of salvation and to the coming judgment. And the word is, the word is repent. Turn from your sins. Be saved from the judgment of God. And be saved today.